This podcast is brought to you by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. For more podcasts and video clips, visit STVP's Educators Corner at edcorner.stanford.edu. If I were a student here, I might be thinking, negotiation, Steve Young, what's going on with that? How does a famous football player negotiate? <laughs> and so the first question I would just throw out is, as you look back on your career, did you have to negotiate, or was negotiation relevant, or how did that factor in as a football player? You know, when you're younger, you don't really realize how much you really are negotiating in your daily life, whether, um, but it really is the, it's the, it's the great skill. It's the great skill in my marriage. It's the great skill in football. It's the great skill in business. It's the skill, and it's all about people. And it takes a, uh, it, it's all kinds of elements to it, too. There's all kinds of angles to negotiation in my mind. Uh, there's classic negotiations for contracts between an agent and a, and a management, and what are the elements of that negotiation. Uh, there, but uh, there's elements of uh, subtle negotiation between me and my teammates, right, because there's 11 guys on this field together, all different nationality, I mean, not nationality, but race and religion, socioeconomic background, geography, you know, language. I mean, everybody's from everywhere, right? So we're all together. And there's elements of negotiation in getting everyone across the line, most me both metaphorically and in reality, to get people across the goal line. And as you say that, I just think of a, a story you told me once. So one thing that an athlete certainly does is negotiate with their agent and through their agent. Your agent, you know, fairly famously, um, Lee Steinberg became, I think, really famous because of you. Um, did you guys always have a good working relationship? How did you negotiate with each other? And tell us a couple stories about that. Uh, he was just a few years older than me when I first came out of college. He was about, I mean, he's 28 and I was 21, so, and he had just uh, landed a couple of big quarterbacks and he was starting the business. And it was interesting, he had his own tactics about negotiating with management and they mostly centered around waiting, getting people either uh, kind of uh, loose with alcohol and then waiting to the middle of the night and just basically um, working them into submission about two or three in the morning, like, we can't stop until this is over. And people, one of the tactics that he used very effectively is he'd call me 4 in the morning. Okay, here's the deal. Da -da 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 -da, and I'd write it down. And then he'd call me at 5.30. Okay, the sun's not up yet, but it's this. And it had gone up, inevitably. And so, you know, I won't say that that's a great tactic, but, uh, <laughs> but he would use his, I would say, his stamina to, like, you know, to negotiate through endless hours. He would just kind of work. He never, he was a bulldog about it. And he, I think he basically wore people down. And just kind of finally got to a point where they like, and then he also overprepared. He would put a book together, um, led by another guy named Scott Parker, who was, um, he, Scott Parker was a guy that w loved the gory details. I mean, absolutely, would data driven, completely engrossed in 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 just different ways to look at the same uh, uh, player. Like he would cut me up in different ways to compare me with. Newt Rockney to Dan Marino to Joe Montana and always made it favorable. He'd figure out all these angles to how why this is why you know Steve Young really relates to in different ta different statistics and so forth. And he made a book out of it, a presentation. And so general managers would get this presentation. They're used to like saying, "Hey, you know, we want our guy. He's and, and then he'd go, "No, he stinks. He's oral." You know, that was the way they used to negotiate. And here it was, they were they were using that kind of moral high ground of logic. Like, here, look at, we're just logically walking through this. Tell me where this doesn't make sense. And he would cover all the loopholes, and because the other guy wasn't as prepared. 
Certainly there's another way to cut that same data and make me look bad, right? If he can make me look good, he can cut it the other way and make it look bad. But he'd overprepared to a point where they weren't ready to make me kind of cut it the other way. And it's tough in a negotiation to all of a sudden say, oh, time out. I need some time to go work through this data. You know, it's like we're in the middle of it. We're in the mix. And so you kind of get swamped that way. So he was always a, a that's his negotiation tactics. But one thing I learned about him over the years is also this negotiation between he and I. Because, uh, uh, you know, you want people to do a great work for you. And sometimes you pay them, but that's not necessarily what everybody's the most effective way to inspire them to do a great job. Lee Steinberg loved to be in the limelight. He was a lawyer out of Berkeley that loved to be, you know, kind of in the mix. And so I learned that in any time that he and I were together, if I would include him in the, in the TV shot, you mean like, you know, move him and send him, I mean, we'd talk together. He, he was energized. And I knew that that's what he wanted. He wanted to be in the, you know, he did not want me to set apart, so I was on the, on the on, on, uh, 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 you know, uh, what's the goofball sports center? Uh, uh, he's on the radio here locally. Sportscaster? No, yeah, sportscaster. What's his name? Uh, channel 4. They're not even a channel anymore, but uh, who is it? Jim Rome. Radnich, Gary Radnich, thank you. <laughs> you guys don't even watch TV, so you're like, I don't I'm not from here. So he would be there and ask a question, you'd include him. And so that night on the news, there was Lee Steinberg, and he would just be over the moon. Uh, and that's another piece of the puzzle, is you really, you have to lose yourself a little bit in negotiation, in any kind of negotiation. Let me give you an example. Uh, when I first started playing for the 49ers, of course, Joe Montana was the looming figure. Anytime I stepped on the field, whether he was there or whether he'd been traded or whether he was hurt or whatever it was, obviously it was a big looming figure. And uh, uh, in many ways, the other guys knew that if things didn't go well, they weren't on the hook, right? If Steve Young's on the field, we're off the hook. Because if something goes wrong, what are they going to say? Well, Joe wasn't on the field. Steve's fault. So, the, so human nature is that you're going to... I'm not going to say human nature, but... We tend to do the least. We tend to get by, we do the most we can with the least amount of effort. And so, especially in football, how can I give myself, make myself look good by doing as little as possible? And especially football, because it's counterintuitive, right, to go ramming into people. And, um, <laughs> I mean, really, it's very, you know, it's all, it's very intuitive with the, the crowd yelling, the cheerleaders, and everyone going, you're great, until the moment you have to go hit somebody. And then it's like, I don't know about this anymore. You know, <laughs> really, I mean, that's why you watch football players. Really, it's like they, everyone talks a big game, and all of a sudden somebody gets hit. It's like, ooh. <laughs> I'm not really sure. But so I would run into the huddle there, and now I've got to negotiate my way across with these guys that aren't necessarily inspired to save my job. I have to look good. I mean, all of a sudden, I'm on the field. I gotta, it's got to happen now. And what do I need to do to make sure that these guys are inspired to go help me? And most of it became, I, I would wear them out with my self-sacrifice. In other words, I never, you never want to show any sign of victimization. Because any time that you have a reason for something to go wrong, you, human nature is to, 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 to express it. Oh, that didn't go well because, you know, all these different reasons. And, uh, and, and, and especially in my case, right, because everyone's being almost unfair because I'm not Joe Montana. Something goes wrong, I, can't, I want to give context for it. Well, most 
normal quarterbacks, this happens, you know, or you want to give excuses. And so I knew that the second I showed any sign of victimization that it was, you know, I wanted to show a reason why, even if it was right, if I showed any reason why something was going to happen, they would, they would, they would respond negatively. I won them over, over time, by never cracking to that kind of human nature. I would go home and oh, I'd call my dad, dad, that sucks, you know, I got screwed again, you know, da, da, da. but in front of that, mm-mm, never. And what happened is it, 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 I gained some respect because I wouldn't do it in the, in the, when the light was on. And, uh, uh, and, and so that's part of negotiation too, right? There's, you, I've, got to, I've got to get these guys going. I can't go in there and tell them some rah-rah story, oh, you know, we're all this together. Or, no, the only way I can do it is really just go to work, keep my mouth shut, and never give an excuse, and take the blame where it was appropriate. So thinking about applying that in the game of football, I mean, one of the worst things that can happen as a quarterback is you throw an interception. And not to focus on some of the negative, but you threw a few. Um, tying that to uh, accountability. Well, see, that's the great thing about playing long enough that now what happened is the guy that replaced me, there was like, well, Steve would never do that, right? Because, you know, and I was like, oh, my gosh, it's come full circle. I can do no wrong. Like, when I retired, it's like, oh, you're the greatest. They don't remember anything negative. But I had 202 interceptions in 18 years. That's a lot. And did you ever... Uh... Not that I count. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I remember you telling me after a game, uh, this is years ago, that you threw an interception and, you know, crowd was coming down on you. I think you even got booed. And the next time you came out, the next play, you threw another interception. Right. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> so... <laughs> Sorry so, to bring back painful memories. No, no, no. So, I mean, it is. I mean, you you got to imagine in football, um, uh, the safest play way to way to play football is kind of ignorantly, like don't really look up and see the crowd, and don't really look at the impact that you have in the in society with football. It's just whether you like it or not, sports has a huge impact. And so, being the quarterback, you know that you're in the you're in the middle of it all. And so, uh, like I said, it kind of relates to the previous story about uh, victimization, but. As soon as I would throw an interception, which if you don't follow football, that's when the quarterback throws the ball to the other team. And that kind of, um, uh, you know, I don't know how to liken it to another sport. It's like striking out or, you know, or I don't know, soccer, kicking one in your own goal. I don't yeah. know, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> but it's, 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 it's somewhat similar in the sense that the rest of your teammates have basically said to you, you know, you're the quarterback. Do something great. Do something really good with it. We trust you. You know, we think you're pretty good. And so then I throw it to the other team, and they have this inevitable moment when they look back at me and say, what? We, why? Why did you do that? Right? We trusted you. We're working hard for you. Why would you, why would you do that? And so what do you want to do? Now, 60,000, 80,000 people watching the game, and as, as Stan mentioned, they're muttering, you know, something, and, and you know, you hear the kind of, and, and so there's this moment when now the lights are on, they turn to me, they say, why did you, why did you do that? And so your human nature is, you want to explain it, right? This is not like I meant to do it. <laughs> like, I didn't drop back and just, okay, I'm going to screw everything up. I can't wait, right? No one, you don't do it on purpose. But there it is in front of everybody. It's like you can't fake it. It, it happened. And now you want to explain it. And so I would go into these long explanations, you know, uh, of, of why this horrible thing had happened, you know, Log logical things like, uh, you know, the receiver turned the wrong way which he does sometimes, you know, and then you, 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 you trust him or you get hit right when you throw the ball or something like that. And, uh, and I noticed over the years that the guys didn't respond. 
they would not respond to my kind of explanation of the intervening uh, circumstances that had led to this horrible thing that had happened. What they responded to after trial and error, and that's from negotiation too, it's not a science, it's like it, it's trial and error. You know what I mean? It's like, so I was trying different things. When I'd make a mistake, I'd think, okay, what should I do? I'll fall on the sword, what should I do? And what, what they wanted to hear was, hey, look, I screwed it up. It was in my hand, and now it's in theirs. So I messed it up. But that's only half of the, I, you know, there's a lot of people running around going, oh, woe is me, it's my fault, I'm sorry, I'm, it's all me. It's, that's, that's the easy part in my mind. The hard part is now we're going to go fix it. That's what people responded to. I screwed it up, but now let's go to the sidelines, let's get a drink of water, we'll rest up, we'll come back on the field, we'll go down and win the game, what do you say? And I'm going to lead you to do it. Now everyone got energized. They're like, hey, we, we're, we're in this together. In fact, they'd go to the sidelines, and they'd go to the coach and say, well, the coach say, what happened? He says, well, I turned the wrong way. It was like, everyone's like, all this accountability came rushing into this group of people, and everybody wanted to be accountable because the, the guy who screwed it up was ultimately accountable. And so we would go back on the field, and that's what Stan's alluding to, uh, six times in my whole career, the very next throw, I threw two in a row. And so, I don't know if you guys have ever made um, two bonehead mistakes in a row. Uh, if you think about it, you yeah, I probably have. But, um, <laughs> but it was two in a row. And then, what do you do? You know, and it, it, I guess what the elements of what Stan's trying to brings me here for is to give context around, not business, not negotiations for what you think maybe tra traditionally, but in everything. In sports, in, in moving, like scoring touchdowns or negotiating contracts or anything else, it's the same thing. So here I screwed it up again. What do you do? Turn to him and say, I tell you what, I screwed it up again. But I'll tell you what, we're going to go to the sidelines. We're going to get a drink of water. We're going to come back on the field. I guarantee you I won't do it three times in a row. We'll go down and win this game. What do you say? And so they're like, they're a little more doubtful, but they're like, yeah, <laughs> we still believe. We'll go, we'll go. And, uh, and luckily, I never did three in a row, you know, <laughs> I never did three. But, but, but it was really an interesting kind of process to figure out what guys wanted to hear from the guy that's kind of in charge. And the last thing they wanted to hear was mitigating circumstances and intervening, you know, uh, mishaps. They wanted ultimate accountability. And in negotiation, and that's what that really is, it's like if you're the, if you're the head negotiator, you, you see it. I, I don't watch The Apprentice much, but every once in a while I'll tune in just to make myself want to throw up, and I'll say to myself, <laughs> it's, it's the worst, it's the best example of accountability where everyone gets in the room and they start, you suck, you... And it's awful to watch the devolving nature of humanity when they start blaming others. And if you want, to me, if you want to win a negotiation, if you win that one in the... For briefly, you might win that one because everybody can go to Vegas and win for a little while. The sooner or later, you will lose, and uh, and you will lose by not taking ultimate accountability. Well, one um, of the things, let me just uh, so that is exactly where I wanted you to go with that, and it's a great story. Um, I can imagine again, if I'm in the students' uh, seats right here, I might say, "Gee, football, you know, it's really different than what we do." Stan's been preaching this, you know, get into other parties' shoes, care about their feelings. We've been talking about people's identities, kind of soft skills. Um, I remember you telling, telling me stories about some of the characters that you dealt with on your teams. There were some pretty uh, you know, highly paid, large ego you know, players, and you had to persuade them, right? 
And so I'm thinking of um, you know big play players and kind of what you might have persuaded them and how you overcame resistance and maybe use some of the soft skills by dealing with people's feelings. Well, I, I'm, I, you know, you got to be careful with soft skills because in quarterbacking, those are the hard. That's that's the that's the place where you can. That's when you if you want to be you know everyone says well I want to be champion. I want to be a great player. You know, how, you know, how great can I be if that's my goal? Well, then you've got to be with great people because there's no way a great quarterback's ever going to do anything without a great team. I mean, no one ever says, you know, the losing quarterback, oh, he's super. The team stinks, but he's super. You know, we're, we're in this together. And so uh, when you really talk about those soft skills about kind of, um, you know, understanding each you know, other person, that, to me, the element, and I'll call it love or respect or, you know, getting to know somebody uh, I used to joke with Jerry Rice's wife, Jackie, that I knew him better than she did. And she's like, oh, come on, that's stupid, you know? I'm like, Jackie, I, I've seen him under, I see him under pressure. I see him when he's tired. I see him when he wants to quit. I see, I mean, I see him in all these kind of extended places. Now, she'd say, well, that's not true. And it's probably right. I did it for effect for Jerry, to make Jerry appreciate his quarterback. But uh, <laughs> because that's part of it, too. You want Jerry, because you want people... Because uh, every, every weekend you get into a football game, especially on the road in front of 80,000, 90,000 people, and the noise alone is enough to make you crazy. And then, you know, just, you get tired, you make mistakes, you get behind, and, you know, it's just human nature is like, I want to quit. I just I can't wait to get to the bus. You start smelling the fumes of the bus like it's uh, this beautiful aroma. You know, you're like, <laughs> I just want to get to the bus so I can get out of here. And, uh, and, and that's when you really know the guys around you. And you have to, as a quarterback, use those soft skills to make sure that individually you can start to corral your guys. I mean, it's like I, Jerry Rice, you can't, you, you had to be very careful about how you got him motivated. He was super motivated, but you, you, you almost, it had to be his idea to be motivated. You couldn't say to Jerry, Dan, Jerry, you son of a bitch, you better be. Blah, blah, blah. He, he, would, he would bristle. He'd be like, hey, you, didn't, you can't make me. You, you know, he's demand resistant, like probably most people in this building. Room. You know, you're, look, you can't. But if you could make him look at it in a way that inspired him, oh, he was like a rocket. You know, if you said something that, you know, um, uh, one of my great tactics is the guy, I was overhearing the guy in the third row, and he says that you're, you know, you've never been good since you were in college, and you've been overrated. He'd be like, word. What? And then, you know, other guys like um, Terrell Owens comes to mind, who played, I played three years with. Now, you know, he's world famous for his different uh, antics. But when I played with him, he was very yes sir, no sir, wanted to be a great football player, wanted to work extra hard. We got into a playoff game where he uh, dropped a bunch of passes, young kid in a big football game, dropping passes. And he came to me, please, please don't give up on me, please. I, 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 you know, because he, he's saying to himself, here's this old quarterback, you know, veteran guy, he knows better than, I'm not going to put up with that. Guy's going to drop passes in the biggest game. I'm not, I'm, you know, it's like, you know, once, fool me once, shame on you. <laughs> fool me twice. That was the Dan Quayle thing, wasn't it, when he messed that one up? And George Bush has followed potato, up as well. Potato, potato, tomato. <laughs> potato, tomato, yeah. Uh, I'm the perfect politician. <laughs> it could be your future career. Yeah. So, uh, and so, you know, he knew better, and so. I, but what I told him is, first of all, because he's the kid that was young and impressionable, and wanted to. He wanted to do really well. He was, in, and I said, "Look, you are the best football player here. You're the most talented, strongest. 
you know, I'm looking for guys that can get open on third down in the tough situations. That's you. You're my guy. I'm throwing you the ball. If you're open, I'm throwing you the ball. I, not to make your big head, Terrell, but I, if my mom was open, I'd throw it to her. You know what I mean? <laughs> but you're going to get open, and you're going to get the football. <sighs> okay, okay. So out he went. You know, I could have said anything that would have demoralized him the rest of the week. I mean, that, he, was, he was on the tip of my finger, right? I could have done anything with him. And I could have, I could have ruined him for weeks. Or I could have, I could have uh, made it all about me. Hey, screw you. I'm, I'm not here about being a champion player. You know, I'm, I'm, uh, if you can't be a champion, then, you know, forget you. I mean, I could, you, you could do whatever you wanted to. In that moment, I kind of owned him. And, and, and that's the, the, kind of the soft skill, the talent is really about stepping in the other guy's shoes. Kind of that selfless way of kind of looking at, look, if I'm going to be successful, if I'm going to be in the, because I'm going to be in the headline tomorrow in the playoff game, it's going to say Steve Young something. Stinks or was great. And, and, and that being the fact, I can't, making my kind of, uh, my, play, my pecking order to Terrell Owens in the middle of the game, let him know that I'm the king, Certainly, is going to help me with the headline, right? If that's my incentive, which not necessarily is my incentive, I'm just giving you an example. And so, those soft skills are really about standing in other people's shoes and, and inspiring them in individual ways. And the only way you can do that is spend time with them. The only way you can do that is get to know them. And and you know that's why the locker room, on the road, in the planes, in the in the in the in the, in the bus, at the at the hotel, um, training camp, in the dorms. I really took, I mean, I, I enjoyed, and maybe that's why it was easier for me, but I enjoyed kind of going room to room in the dorms in the middle of summer camp when everyone's tired and just rapping with people. You know, how's you doing? You're getting to know their wives' names, getting to know a little bit about their kids, where they're from. So, so that now you get poor. Now you can use that rapport. And the next day in practice, when somebody, something funny happens, you go, well, I bet you that didn't happen back in uh, Knoxville. You know, you just, now they, you know, they know you know them. You know what I mean? And you're involved with their lives, and then they, that interaction starts to build and build and build, and it gets more layered. And then over time, you get with Jerry Rice, I've been with 15 years. Now, it gets to a point where, and I'm, you're going to negotiate with someone for 15 years, unless you're married. But, um, but I got to a point where Jerry Rice would be running down the field. And it happened very obviously many times when the crowd would be screaming as loud as they could. A lot of times, you had to break the huddle, and everyone would be like, what? What's the play? You know, and you're like, we can't, I can't explain it to everybody. We got to go. And so a lot of times we'd be, I'd be under center yelling as loud as I could. And I'd look out at Jerry and he'd be like, you know, what? Like, what am I, what am I supposed to do? And I'd be like, you know, and he'd be like, and then we'd snap the ball. And we'd start and he'd start running and I'd drop back and I'd throw him the ball. <laughs> And he'd catch it, and, and, and I, you know, we'd go back. The game goes so fast, you don't have time to really appreciate those moments. But later, you'd, you'd say to yourself, neither of us knew what we were doing. We had no plan. <laughs> but yet, here he was running down the field, and I, because I'd been with him so long, I kind of, you could see where he was going. Like, I could tell what he was going to do by his body language. To me, that's an element of that soft skill. If I never really paid attention to Jerry Rice until he was open, then, or, or I didn't pay attention to you know, his history of his, kind of his life and how he grew up, and it was a hard scrabble kind of thing in the dirt roads of Mississippi, and his dad was a tough bricklayer. He was laying bricks at six, seven years old in the hot summer. You know, it's like you get to know people, and now you start to affiliate with them, and what happens is this, 
I don't want to make it too soft, but I mean, <laughs> you know, you get to know him so well that you kind of, you, I could tell his body language. His body spoke to me as he ran. It's like, I know where you're going. Boom. I throw him the ball. And that's no better example I can think of than um, the soft negotiating skills that you're talking about. Yeah, and I remember what you just said reminded me of uh, a conversation we had years ago when, um, you know, it wasn't always great for you with the 49ers. You were sort of the understudy. And the coaches, I remember, were pretty down on you early in your career. And I remember you and I talking about that. And one of the coaches, I forget which one, kind of gave you a little lecture on, hey, you need to start uh, performing a little better or else. Can you talk a little bit about that story and lessons you learned? Do you remember the story? Yeah, I do. I, th I think it's the one I, I, I think. I, uh, and I hate Stan goes, okay, remember that story? And I'm like, oh, Stan, I'm, uh, I'm beyond that story. <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing much more important things now. <laughs> Why don't we talk about what I'm doing now? Make myself feel better. And he's like, no, it's not that, it's not that exciting. <laughs> it's boring. We did, we did prepare for people this. Don't, people don't want to hear the boring stuff. I'm like, no, but that's it. So, um, uh, I, you know, as I, I came in, I'm six foot flat, maybe a quarter inch. Um, and what did you put on, what did you uh, put on your football card? I, I wrote six two. <laughs> because anyone, I mean... When, when height, height especially is so important in basketball, but also quarterbacks, because you know Doug Flutie suffered for years and years and years because he was 5'8". He couldn't get out from under it. He'd win games, all these football games, and people are like, yeah, but he's 5'8". Like, it <laughs> it's sick the way they, 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 they kind of do that. But the truth is, is that height matters because there's so many big guys on the field that literally you can't see unless you're 6'5". And so um, a lot of times I would drop back to pass, and there's huge guys in front of me, and I'm six foot. And so, and, and being six foot was the key, right? If I was five, 11, and three quarters, oh. You know, if it started with a five in the NFL, they would, like, panic. But six, you know, was enough to kind of get you through the door. But, uh, but so I'd drop back to pass, and I'd be looking, you know? And I'm like, oh, crap, I can't see, you know? And I'd, like, move aside, I'd, like, move aside, and I'd, like, I can't see. And then in the NFL, I mean, it's like boom, 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 boom. It's not like you go, okay, hold up for a second, I can't see, you know. It's like, it's like you've got to look, right? And then you're just you're flat on your back. And so I'd be like, I can't, and then I'm down. And so we'd go to the silence. The coach would say, Steve, Jerry Rice was open. You know, why didn't you throw him the ball? What would I say? Couldn't see him. <laughs> and so his comment, which is awesome, it's typical my dad, we better start seeing him. <laughs> right? <laughs> Thanks for the tip. That's <laughs> <laughs> my, my entire college education. One right there. Just better start seeing them. And so I, I got to thinking about it. Uh, you know, I, those are opportunities that a taller guy have taken advantage of. And they're all are taller guys. Just so happened the guy behind me at the time was Elvis Gerbach. That name sounds familiar if you've been around a long time. But he was out of Michigan. He was like 6'6". You know? And so you know what the coach is thinking, right? Keep it up. I got Elvis Gerbeck. He's 6'6". He won't miss that, right? So you think, how am I going to be 6'6"? <laughs> I, can't, I can't do it. I can't put stilts on. I can't have high heels. I can't, uh, you know, what am I going to do? And so uh, I started thinking about, uh, you know, I'm in a tough spot. And I don't know. I'm not sure where the negotiation uh, uh, plays here, but it's also about understanding yourself. Understanding your own weaknesses. Negotiation, in my mind, is really having a self. You need to stand. You're going to need to stand back from yourself 
and kind of say, okay, what am I good at? Where are my holes? What gets me in trouble? Could be a temper, right? I got a temper, and it, cr it crushes me in negotiation. In my case, it was six, I'm six foot, you know? It just happens to be my profession. I, I got to step away. What are the things? And there are many other things that I was my shortcomings. We all have them, right? What are they? Let's start to understand them, and let's start mitigating those, those issues because I'm going to get in the middle of something. If I'm going to succeed, if I'm going to reach what my goal is, I need to figure out a way around that one. I'm not going to grow. Now, there's other things you could have a temper you could actually work on, right? I can, like, go to therapy, or I can work on temper control. Or, you know, I've, one of my best friends in my life had the worst temper, and now he doesn't. So it, you can get rid of it. But you can't grow, right? I'm not going to grow. I'm six foot. I'm actually going to shrink right before I grow. <laughs> I might be five-something. But, uh, but so I started thinking, well, you know, I drop back. I can't see. I just saw the receiver a second ago. I know where he is. I just can't see him. So what am I going to do? I'm going to throw it anyway. On faith. Brutal. Brutal endeavor for a quarterback. Because, I mean, you can't afford mistakes. Even in practice, you make a lot of mistakes. People are like, hey, you know, this is the NFL. This is the, you know, especially on Joe Montana. I mean, it's like, it's embarrassing. Every time something went wrong, I had to have that. So all of a sudden, I'm going to start throwing blind? And what was amazing about it is that I started completing him. Now, they weren't in the same right spot, right? They'd be ahead or high, or, but they were being completed. And no one cared. It wasn't like I turned to the coach and said, I threw a blind coach, you know? <laughs> that one wouldn't have been, that one wouldn't have been completed, but for my kind of ingenuity, right? <laughs> and no one cared. Even Jerry Rice, I'd say, Jerry, I'm going through this metaphysical process. I'm learning to throw the ball blind. <laughs> and so that's why the ball's not in the perfect spot. Usually I put it right here, right? And now it's, you know, and his response was, well, I don't care. Put it right here, right? Because <laughs> no one cares. That's why that self-analysis is so important, because no one, even your mom, especially your mom, because she loves you so much, she doesn't want to show you all your things you're horrible at. You really have to be the one that kind of steps back and says, you know what, I have holes. And, we're, you know, and if you think you're that great, just recognize that you have them. Step back and make a study of it. Because if you want to be a great negotiator, it truly is understanding. I can use your weaknesses that you don't understand about yourself against you every time. Ad nauseum. Honestly, until you're just driven into the ground. I mean, these guys that had weaknesses or insecurities in, in my team, if I needed to, I owned you. I didn't necessarily I wanted to do that. It wasn't my, 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 but in the end of the day, if I needed to get things moving along in the, in the team and get things moving forward and scoring touchdowns and getting people going, guys, you know, you'd use those techniques if, if people had holes. And how would you, and on that, 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 that's a great point. How would you use that against the competition, whether that's, you had certain relationships with some, some well, that's what I, I mean, I, you know, you, 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 would work, you would foster a great relationship with your teammates. You took advantage of your teammates' insecurities, and you're, you're going to fail I mean, in the long run. But you look at, when I talk about driving people on the ground, you talk about defense, the other guys. It was amazing to me. Once I learned the game and got settled in and relaxed and really studied the game and became kind of a, art, um, a true professional, I could start to study the 11 guys that were across from me. I mean, in the moment, I could look them in the eye, and I started to, by studying them on film and, and, and getting to know them better, you could give, they'd give themselves away. One of my favorites was, um, uh, for the Dallas Cowboys, was Darren Woodson. He played many years for, for the Cowboys at, at safety. He was a very good player, very good guy, uh, smart guy. 
And so being uh, so smart, he would use the, that smart to get, you know, try to trick people. He was very tricky. But his tricks were always the same <laughs> because we're all creatures of habit. You know, I, had, I always worked on things I did every time the same because like, you had to break the mold because if you did everything the same, everyone got to jump on you. That was that same analysis of yourself. What do, what do I give away? What are my little, what's the, I hate poker, but I, you know, it's all that same stuff. Like, what's my tell, right? What's my little thing that I'm giving away? Studying that understanding yourself, now using it against your, your opponent. Darren Woodson, every time he was going to blitz, right, he was going to come and blitz me, he wouldn't look at me, right? Because it was almost like if you looked at me, I would tell, I could tell. So he'd be looking away, and I'd be like, oh my gosh, here he comes, right? <laughs> I almost wanted to tell him, Darren, look at me, right, you know, to just play with him. Because he'd be like, I can't see you, I don't know where you are, I don't know where you are. <laughs> But that's, I mean, in negotiations, and it's not necessarily, I never want you to think that I would be preaching, taking the advantage of other people's weaknesses to gain the advantage and pound them into submission. Because <laughs> that, that, won't, that, won't, that doesn't work over the long haul. I mean, because I know in negotiations, in football, it's a little bit of a different because of score and everything else. But truthfully, in, in most negotiations I've ever been involved in, if, I, if, if there's not a sense, and I know this is old school it's like you're saying symbiotic. Everyone's like, huh. But the win-win thing, right? Because if you don't find a way for everybody to kind of gain momentum together and find a place to land, um, I'm in negotiations all the time in business now. If you don't allow people a place to land, you're in for the dogfight of your life. People will not give in if they don't have a soft place to land, if you don't give them a place to go that feels okay, that feels safe. That, uh, again, remembering a story about sort of giving them a soft landing. You had to deal with coaches a lot. And I remember your offensive coordinator had some pretty specific ideas about what plays he wanted you to run. And you were one of the few quarterbacks in the NFL to be calling your own plays. And so how did you kind of negotiate with him, and how did you prepare so that you could kind of get the plays run that you wanted and not have a conflict with him? Well, I mean, uh, on campus here, Bill Walsh, who is, uh, you know, I mean, I could spend the next hour and 15 minutes talking about Bill Walsh, and I have you weeping about how great a coach he was, how, uh, what an uh, uh, innovative, uh, ahead of the game, um, enlightened. He brought football uh, into the next you know, generation. I mean, football was archaic, and every coach used the whip, you know, never used the carrot very effectively. Um, it was by submission. I, I'm going to pound you in submission to get you to do what I want. Very old school stuff you know, embodied by the fact that no one would ever give them a drink of water, right? That was the old way. You know, I'm going to break these guys where they, you know, I won't give them. And Bill was like, well, give them some water. They're thirsty, you know. And let's not pound them into submission. Let's use the, you know, he was just an enlightened guy. And being here on campus, Stanford gets to take a lot of credit for that um, in Silicon Valley. He was Silicon Valley before Andy Grove ever, you know, I don't know if that's true. I mean, I'm going to be on YouTube, so I better be careful. But, uh, <laughs> but, but Bill gets a lot of credit for kind of being Silicon Valley maybe before anyone even, Steve Jobs even started. I don't know when he started Apple. But Bill was doing in 1980, 81, 82, just that enlightened kind of uh, human re relations kind of thing. But one of Bill's um, soft spots for me was uh, he loved to come up with great ideas. He was, he was, in, he was ingenious. And so I noticed that if you could feed him something that he could come up with an idea, you could actually um, get your play called, right? Because it would kind of like, not that he had to author it, but it was almost like he was, he'd say, well, Bill, what if you, 
Like if I said, here, Bill, here's a, here's a play that I've been working on. I think it'll really work. I don't know that he would be like, no, that's nice. But I say, Bill, uh, what, do you, what do you think? The play that you brought up yesterday, that was really interesting. But if, think about if he went, the guy went this way and that way. What do, you, what do you think about that? He'd be like, now that's an idea, right? <laughs> that's a great idea. Let's call it this, this, and this. And then, boom, we, we, we're on our way. And, uh, and I guess that's what you mean. Uh, so making it about them and not you. Right, because, uh, you know, he was a genius. And so he's so good at creating plays that you'd almost kind of get in with the flow. Like, okay, if he's going to be creating all these plays, well, I'll, I think I got some good ideas. I'm going to get in with them. And uh, rather than fighting him and saying, well, I have good ideas too. You know, hey, what about me? You know, just, you know, get in and gain his respect. You come up with enough good, good ideas, Things he'll start saying, "Hey, that young kid, he's got some good ideas," you know. And pretty soon, he, 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 you know, after a year or two, he's going, "Steve, what do you what do you think?" You know. Well, that was impossible two years ago. So I just, I mean, uh, that's another little piece of of kind of understanding uh, people around you and and getting to yes kind of thing. I know it sounds goofy, but that was kind of, you know, in, in football, that you have to. There's a score. There's a time. There's there's no time to kind of cock it or. Rethink it, or oh, let's go, let's go, let's let's you know, uh, sleep on it, you know, you know, you, it, it's this it wasn't the profession. It was here and now. We're in, and there's no excuses. There's no getting out. The lights are on, and they're on for another three hours. They'll be off soon, but for right now, we're in this together. And it's going to be embarrassing, or it's going to be great, depending on how we handle the next three hours. So before. Um I remember through a tough time uh, with the media. Sometimes they weren't always supportive of you, and you really, I think, did a good job of eventually winning them over. And that I sort of saw that as a negotiation. So how did you? Did certain uh, experiences come up from kind of how you dealt with the media, and were they fair to you? And did fairness matter? And how did you deal with the media from a negotiation perspective? Well, there was a time uh, here in town where you know we we talked about this thing with Joe and so forth. That I was the new guy, and it was not. It was so easy to um, disregard me because I hadn't done anything, you know. And, uh, and so, actually, I wouldn't be disregarding. It would just be being normal. I mean, <laughs> how can you disregard someone that has no regard? But, um, uh, but you know, I learned in the same way with my teammates that the media guys would write things that are tough. They would, uh, they would take things out of context and... and, and Recreate. Think of guys that covered the team every day, right? The beat writers. They had to come up with a story about the 49ers every day. I'm in the middle of, of it all in the locker room, and if I had to come up with a story every day, it's impossible. There's not that many interesting things going on. There's not, there's no, there's not that much intrigue. There's nothing that's really newsworthy every day. But I have to write a story. And so... What I started to think about, because I was always kind of getting pounded by him, and I would, and I think that they always expected me to come and kind of complain. Hey, you're being unfair. Uh, you know, you should think about it. I basically just was happy. You know, hey, hey, how you doing? You know, Ira, good to see you. You know, and he just ripped me that morning. So he was waiting for. He wanted to tangle. You know, what I mean, he, Ira, how you doing? Good to see you. You know, because I just there was no win. There was no way to win. It wasn't like I was going to go to him and say, you, you, what you wrote is so crap, you know, you didn't look at it this way and you need to see it. That's what they, they, they thrived on it, you know. 
And so you just, why even go? And it wasn't like I was going to win them over by being nice. It's just that I had nowhere, I had no place. I didn't see a place to kind of enter and be, be influential in what was happening. Uh, and so as I did that, I started to see that these guys that were coming down every day to write stories, everyone else looked at them as like these pariahs, hanging around, trying to find some factoid and trying to use it again. I was like, well, they're not going away. They're here every day. You know, they, they, they must be looking at us as like these spoiled, rich you know, athletes. I mean, what, how do they see what's going on every day? Same kind of thing, right? The soft skill. Like, where, where are they coming from? And then I, I realized that I started thinking to myself, these poor guys kind of drive down from Napa through traffic, you know, crossing the bridge and getting down. And back then in Silicon Valley, it was just in the midnight, especially. It was just crazy. You couldn't, driving from, Na, uh, from Napa to, to Santa Clara every day, well, you got to be kidding me. Grind his wall all the way down there, come down and have these guys tell you nothing. I finally realized, you know what? The best thing I can do just give them something. They just give them a little something. And they can, something they can write a story about. You know what I mean? What a blessing that would be if I had driven all the way down from Napa, fighting traffic. I have to write something. If the quarterback of the team actually, you know, helped me out with this little something. It wasn't necessarily about me. I'd be like, yeah, you know, what happened? You know what? We got this new grass. You know? <laughs> <laughs> you know? And, and our, 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 our guy that was in charge of the grass, our groundskeeper, like, he was the kind of guy on Caddyshack that actually ate it to see if it was good. And, you know, he'd live in it, you know. He was awesome. Rich. Uh, Rich was his name. And he, he uh, you know. And so I was like, you know, that would be, be no one's ever. And so I told him that he had put in this new um, turf one year in our practice field so that it was more hardy, you know, it wouldn't wear out. And, and he wouldn't have to replant it in the fall, you know, when it changed seasons, you know, all this stuff. I said, you know what, we've got this new, and, and so he wrote, and so the, that day he went and talked to Rich and had all the quotes, and he had a story the next day. 49ers, cutting edge of agronomy or whatever that is. Or, <laughs> is that what it is, agronomy? Or I don't know. I think that's something to do with animals. <laughs> anyway, uh, but, but, you know, and what happened is, it wasn't like I was trying to have him say, oh, treat me more than fair, you know. Uh, when I make mistakes, don't pound me. You know, I didn't even, that wasn't even where I was coming from. It was more like, look, we're in this together. Uh, it's like a three-ring circus. Yeah, my ring's over here and your ring. We weren't really intersect because you're doing something completely different, which is talking about things that, you know, aren't necessarily true. And then I'm over here living this life. But we're in this, we're in the same tent, right? We're in this together. Let's figure out ways to work together where we can make our time together more productive. And in the end, I believe you'll be more fair. You'll, be, you'll do the same back. I, it wasn't quid pro quo, hey, by the way, you know, but just human nature, right? There, I, you know what, I might dig, I heard something about the guy that was maybe not so flattering. Instead of just running with it and not getting a quote from me, maybe he'll come to me. Go, hey, Steve, you know, this is what I heard. You have a comment. At least give me a shot to, to defend myself, right? And, uh, and so over the years, uh, my relationship with the, with the guys in the media were, were really, I don't want to make too much of it, but I, they were really neat relationships that I, I enjoyed. And uh, when I retired, I actually did miss them. I missed kind of seeing them every day and jostling with them and making fun of them and, and, uh, and laughing with them or whatever else. It was another, and really, it, it um, enriched my life down at the practice field every day. I was bored to tears a lot of times, too. 
And instead of this fighting, you know, there they are, riots, they're out to get me. You know, I kind of look at it different, looked at it a whole different way, and it, it energized, it got there, you know, it just was all a positive. And I don't know if that's negotiation necessarily or just kind of working through your life and yeah, I think it is. finding I think places to, <clears throat> to, um, to uh, uh, and it's not really soft, too. It's not like, oh, I'm enriching everyone's life. It's just... Look, we're we're in the, we're in it together. Who yeah, are we, we talk we talk a lot in the class about relationship management, how to sort of build relationships that you can then do good things with that. Um, that might be a nice segue just into things you've done since football. Maybe talk about kind of family and how you approach negotiations from a personal perspective, different than maybe you did on the football field, or is it the same stuff? A lot of the same things. Um, today, uh, uh, my wife. It usually gives me a list of things, right? You know, I got to get done, and inevitably, um, I don't know what it is. It's she thinks it's subconscious that I'm out to get her, um, <laughs> but but I it's not. It's not subconscious. I'm not. But I, inevitably, something I forget something, you know, or something I do it wrong, you know. I mean, the dumbest. You couldn't believe it. And there's so many times I think she. Mu you have to believe I mean it to do it wrong, because to do it wrong. But it just happens, and so I take that same quality I told you about interceptions. And I, what I do is I immediately tell her, look, I screwed it up, you know, but I'm going to go fix it. And so you, she can't complain. Here's a kid that sees that he screwed it up, and he's going to go fix it. And, and I, you know, it's funny that I, used, I learned that in football, and I, and, I, and I use it every day in, in my marriage. And so I, I think there are things that are the same. And then there's things that just aren't. You know, when I said, you know, football was all about the moment, like, we can talk about it tomorrow, but right now, we got to go. And in life, that's not necessarily the case. Every once in a while, there's moments when things have to happen. But most of it's just kind of managing relationships. And, uh, uh, and, and that takes, you know, it's the same soft skills we've been talking about. But, you know, the football was different. But uh, personally, uh, um, you know, there's the same elements, though, to me, of the, the soft skills in football are the same in marriage or your family or anything else, like my kids. I mean, I got six, four, and a newborn, and I'm busy, I'm running around, but I spend a lot of time with my kids. But I realize I'm spending a lot of time with my kids in the car on the phone. But I'm spending time with my kids. I'm not. That same skill of kind of, hey, stepping back, wait a second, what's his experience? His experience is sitting in the back seat in his car seat listening to me talk to people on the phone. He's not with, I'm not with him. And it was like, it, was, it hit me one day. It's like, look, I'm, I'm kidding myself that I'm really around my kids a lot. I have interaction, yeah, in and out of the car, you know, or, but, but there's all these great moments. And so it's like, it's, it's all the same stuff. It's being able to step back. Okay, what's my hole? Yeah, yeah, I think I'm doing this great service and I'm doing nothing, actually hurting them because now I'm with them and I'm not with them, which is actually double negative. And so it's just, it, you know, the same things I use in football, I find myself doing the same things in, in my personal life. I remember, uh, and we'll just maybe make this the last question and take some uh, questions from the students. So I remember at the end of your career, maybe it wasn't the end of your career, maybe it was after the Super Bowl, um, you had a little trip down to Disneyland, you might talk a little bit about that, but <laughs> talk about um, kind of how you keep things in perspective. Um, you know, you're a celebrity, you're still a celebrity. I remember uh, recently being, Steve and I were getting ice cream, and there were a couple of uh, girls, these were definitely... Well, I'm a celebrity in, in, well, I'm not a celebrity in Palo Alto, they don't care, but I'm very big in San Jose. I don't know what it is. I'm very big in the East Bay. I'm big downtown. Less big in Burlingame on South. And then I, I hit Sunnyvale, I'm big again. But Palo Alto, Atherton, Menlo Park, 
not big. It's all about Steve Jobs and, uh, you know. Other Steves. Other guys. Yeah, he lives like three doors down. And it's like, I'm nobody. <laughs> Which is perfect. Well, I remember just a, a quick anecdote. Maybe a year or so ago, we were getting some ice cream at Gelato in Palo Alto. Two girls, and they were definitely kind of, you know, teenage, not yet women. They were kind of mumbling, mumbling behind us. And they said, that's Steve Young, that's Steve Young, that's Steve Young. And I, I figured you didn't hear. And Steve, all of a sudden, out of the blue, just turned around and said, yep, it's really me. <laughs> well, I have a face. It happens to me all the time, daily almost. Or on the airplane, you told me stories. Me. Yeah. yeah, someone will look at me. And it could be anywhere. I, was in, I, I traveled to Ghana, Africa uh, uh, two three weeks ago. And uh, I'm, you know, I'm, in the, I'm in Accra uh, airport, and someone's looking at me, you know? And, the, and I know what they're thinking. I know him, but I don't know where. I have, a, <laughs> I have this face that people, they feel a fit of affiliation with me, but they, don't, they can't place it. And it happens almost universally. And, uh, and uh, so we'll, uh, so you can see them kind of, they're looking, and, and, and I'm, you know, I handle it all different ways. Uh, but a lot of people say, I know you, a lot of people say, I know you from somewhere. And I, a lot of times I say, well, what, where'd you go to high school? And, uh, <laughs> because that's what they're thinking. They're like, did I go to, do I, did I work with you? And then we'll have fun with them, and finally they'll kind of, well, either I'll tell them or, you know, I, I usually don't try to embarrass them or anything, but we'll have, but at times it gets embarrassing back to me, right? Because I'll be at, I was at the airport, uh, San Francisco, uh, sitting at a gate, kind of reading the paper, and a lady next to me, and she was elderly, um, 70, 75, 80, and uh, uh, she was reading her paper, and she glanced over, and I could tell that there was that, you know, because she, she kept, you know, <laughs> and, and uh, she finally she goes, you know what, you look a lot like Steve Young. And I, and I said, I, you know, this is, I just, I, I go with what, what, what my reaction I said, well, yeah, a lot of people say that. <laughs> and, uh, and so not knowing where it was going to go next, but usually it's no big deal. <clears throat> so she takes three, four beats and says, <clears throat> I don't like him. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, crap, I gave too much time. Right? But I'm not used to that response. And so I was like, so what do I do? What do you do right then, right? I go, why? <laughs> I got it. You know? And so she, 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 she said, I, I, uh, you know, I love the 49ers, and, you know, when he came, he, my favorite player was Joe Montana, and he ran him out of town, and I'll never forgive him, you know? <laughs> and, and I don't mind, I don't blame him. You know, I really don't blame people for that. Because it was a really tough time. But, uh, so I laugh about it. It's not personal. I don't mind that. But it's just funny, uh, people's reaction. And you know, universally, if this hasn't happened to you, it will. When you meet someone of, uh, you know, I put it in the old classic celebrity quotes, celebrity, I mean celebrity quotes, uh, uh, you know, where someone says, well, they're a celebrity. But you meet someone who has some celebrity, your brain, you lose 50 to 60 points on your, uh, uh, your IQ because the first thing out of your mouth is usually ridiculous. And it, happens, it happened to me when I met Charlton Heston. I was like, hey, you're great in Ben-Hur. <laughs> it does. The first thing you say is ridiculous. And it ha so it's happened to me on both sides because it happens to me all the time. The first thing people say to me is like, you know, something kind of goofy. You know, they can't help it. So, so watch yourself when you meet someone that's got some celebrity. Like, like, even the more you think about it, the more you'll screw it up. You know, it's weird. 
I remember at uh, our house in Arizona when you met my uncle, Buzz Aldrin, and you asked him super awkwardly if it would be okay if you got your picture taken with him, and he laughed at you. Buzz <laughs> Aldrin. <laughs> <laughs> Big. So, um, values and what's important to you, and kind of after the Super Bowl, you made a trip down to Disneyland. Right, so this is a classic one. In fact, it's so classic, you might have... Uh, offhandedly heard it, but it was, it's really, you know, for me, it was, it was fundamental. So all the years I'd been playing, um, you know, Joe Montana was mostly known about Super Bowls. If you're, he's a champion. He went four times. And so Steve Young, yeah, he's good, he's good, but he hasn't won a Super Bowl. So I finally went to the Super Bowl, and it was really important that I won it uh, because then, you know, the, it would just stop. It would be like, well, you know, they both went to Super Bowls. Yeah, Joe went to four, but, hey, you know, one's a, one's a lot. And... Um, so the night before uh, the Super Bowl, they, uh, you know, the PR guy came to me and said, "Hey, uh, Disney wants to do the, the the thing where they yell on the camera, what do you, you know, now that you're MVP of the Super Bowl, what are you going to do?'" And you yell, "I'm going to Disneyland." And, uh, and that was kind of like being in the Wheaties box. It was a great thing, but they did it to about ten guys because they didn't know who was going to be the MVP. Right? It could be you, it could be someone else. And so they offered like twenty-five hundred bucks to to uh, to be a part of this promotion. But it was not really, obviously, it wasn't about the money. It was just kind of a neat thing to do. Uh, and so I said, yeah, 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 I'll do it. So I ended up being the MVP of the game. And so we're, we're, I'm so excited that we won the game. But Roddy knocked our PR director, ran up and says, hey, you got to do that Disneyland thing. They're, they're, here's the camera. And so um, I, I was happy to be near Jerry Rice. I go, Jerry, do this with me because he'd already done it. A couple years ago, he'd be the MVP. And I said, oh, let's do it together. It'll be fun. And uh, uh, typical Jerry goes, will you money? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, he didn't say that. He didn't say that. Um, so... Uh, uh, we both yelled in the camera, you know, now you went to the Super Bowl MVP. Well, we're going to Disneyland. But what I didn't realize was that, because uh, the contract, I mean, being a lawyer and everything, I don't read contracts. Uh, <laughs> I, it's in the small print, it says that you are going to Disneyland. <laughs> um, it's, not it's not a metaphorical thing. Uh, and not only are you going to Disneyland, you're, you're going tomorrow. Uh, that was the deal. I didn't realize that. So, day after the Super Bowl. Day after the Super Bowl. So we're in Miami. Obviously, you know, the, the Super Bowl party went through the night, and then I was on Good Morning America at, like, what is that, uh, 6 o'clock in the morning. Then I had to go over and get the MVP trophy, and then we went to the airport and got on the, bu on the bus and the plane, flew to San Francisco, got off the plane, went to Market Street for the trolley cars, did the parade down, uh, you know, Market Street, and then uh, immediately got in the car with Jerry Rice, and we went to uh, SFO to fly to Anaheim to, to go to Disneyland. <laughs> I mean, honestly, my wife, my mom, my family, my family, well, where are you going? I'm like, I, 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 uh, I'll be back. <laughs> so we went down to Disneyland, and, and I, I got to tell you, I, I landed, and, and anyone that had been to Disneyland, we were, it was right in front of the castle, and I have to set the stage and, uh, because uh, literally there was a stage, like there's a big float, and on the float it said Steve Young, Jerry Rice, Super Bowl MVPs, and gold and red streamers, and on top was myself, Jerry Rice, and Mickey Mouse, because it was, and so uh, in front was the Disneyland band, I don't know if you knew they had one, but they have a band, and so we went down Main Street, and I just remember being on this float, after all I'd been through my whole life, you know, just the tough times, the good times, everything, and here I was at Disneyland, and people were going crazy, I mean, the place was packed, it was California, Super Bowl was in there, they just watched it last night, and there he there we are. So they're going crazy, you know, and they're yelling, hey, Steve Young, you're the greatest. Steve Young, you're the man. Steve Young. Steve, 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 Steve. And, like, I try to keep a handle on myself. I, you know, it's my dad's um, teaching, you know, that you don't want to lose yourself in anything because, you know, you're not that big of a deal, blah, blah, blah. 
And I got to be honest with you, I lost it right there. I, I, I was huge. I remember thinking to myself, I am the man. <laughs> you know, I am huge. I was like doing the Richard Nixon, you know, I was like, oh, yeah, I'm the man. And, uh, you know, and I, I remember for that, like, 300 yards, or, you know, down Main Street to the end, I, I was as big as it could be. And, um, uh, and the reason why I remember that so vividly is because at the end of the ride, the band stopped playing, the noise died down, and we turned to kind of go backstage at Disney. As we turned on the street, there's two, you know, the curb was there, and there's two little kids are sitting on the curb, and they're waiting to, they're, you know, they're waiting. There's stupid things in the way, and they're waiting to go. And their mom addressed them exactly like, you know, how they do that at Disneyland. And I'm going to say they're six and eight years old, and so they're sitting on the curb like this, you know, whatever. And the little one looks up and sees this float, and he goes, Mickey Mouse! Oh. Well, kids, you can imagine. I mean, there he is. It's like the ultimate moment for a little kid. It's like, there's Mickey Mouse right there. And so he starts to run towards the stage, and before he can get to, to the float, his brother grabs him by the shirt and pulls him back and says, you can't get near him. The two big guys won't let you. <laughs> and I, I know it sounds stupid. You know, I know it's, like, ridiculous, but it was like a, it was like a, it was a moment. Because I remember wanting to yell. I mean, I remember wanting to yell at the kid, kid, read the sign, you know? <laughs> Of all the times in, in my life, it's not about Mickey Mouse, it's right now, you know? <laughs> Needless to say, it is about me, and, uh, and I want you to understand that. Uh, and, and so I just, it was a perfect, perfect uh, kind of moment for me to realize that here I was, the ultimate, and it lasted about 350 yards down Main Street. And, it's, and I think it's poignant for me in my life, too. Because as much as I made my life about winning a Super Bowl, it lasted such a short time. And even that was a great accomplishment with a lot of great guys. But truthfully, it was just another kind of place to gas up and get charged and go on to the next thing. And, uh, and it was more, no more poignant than that little boy saying that it was all about Mickey Mouse. And I, I, uh, I updated that experience because uh, hubris is a very damaging, damning thing in people's lives. Um, the idea that, you know, I am a man, and I am, you know, I've, I've seen people negotiate with a, with, a, with a sword and a whip and be successful. Um, and I won't say that over time that gets you, because I've seen people do it for a long time and be successful. Um, but I can tell you that the value of, of, of negotiating that way and living that way, it, it's diminishing returns. There's no question about it. It is an eternal law. And uh, as you guys learn about negotiations and finding ways to kind of get to yes for yourself, um, there are going to be great goals out there for you, you know, whatever it is, Super Bowls for yourself. And I just want to be the first example of, of, you know, don't let your negotiation and winning lose yourself um, because uh, it's, a, it's, a, uh, you know, it's a damaging place to, to live. And uh, I'm grateful for football to teach me all those different lessons. I could have never learned as quickly and as more as effectively if it wasn't for you know 50 guys and another 50 guys on the other side and the lights on and millions watching and the game itself so i am grateful uh it was the perfect place to learn about negotiation all right well those are great comments let's give steve a hand So we have about uh, 45 minutes um, for questions. And so if you'd like to ask a question, come and line up over here at the mic. And um, I can put Jay Leno. Yeah. 
Um, anyone like to ask a question? Sarah, do you want to jump in? Sure. Mine's kind of a funny question, but what, if any, lessons about negotiation have you learned from your kids? Well, uh, that's interesting. You know, kids are, um, you know, fundamentally irrational till they're about five or six. That's, <laughs> this, this is from my own experience, right? So I'm not saying that's true for everybody, but from my own experience. And so um, I, I've noticed that I, I'm all about getting things accomplished, and I want my kids to accomplish with me. Like, we're all doing this, guys. And I get these irrational responses. And, uh, and they're not, I'm, I'm, I find myself like, no, we're, you know, and I find myself rationalizing with them, right? Okay, look, this is how this works, and we're going to do that, blah, blah, blah. And, I, and if we prepare and I get you guys warning and let you guys know what's coming, we're all going to get this done, right? We're all going to, we're, we're, we're marching together, you know? I'll even march with them. Okay, march, 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 you know? And uh, make fun, make games of it. And, uh, and inevitably, there's this irrational moment where everything just goes to heck, you know, it's like just everything devolves. And I'm like, no, we're going to, you know, and so I continue to, to effectively try to rationalize with them. And, uh, and, I, and I think the best lesson is that I, we get caught in what our goal is. I have a goal, right? I have a thing I'm going to get accomplished. And I'm going to get accomplished regardless. And what I'm doing is I'm accomplishing it right over their, kind of like running right over them. And, uh, and, that's not to say that in adults you, you can obviously rationalize. But in the end, it's the same thing. You know, my kids teach me that it's, you, know, you, you, might, you have to navigate uh, to get to the goal many times, almost always. And I've found the kids that I need to stop and navigate them or else I'm, I'm getting to the goal and it's a very ineffective lesson for them and it's a very hollow victory for me. <laughs> yeah, we got to the store. We got everything done. Boy, it was miserable, you know. <laughs> And uh, it's really uh, taught me to be more creative. Uh, I'm very goal-oriented. Uh, and I very, you, know, you give me a task, I'm like a horse to the barn, baby. I'm, we're going. And uh, that's a great quality. But I'm, you know, and as you list your, as we talk about your holes in your life or your personality or other things, you're, there's also the great things you're at going. But most, a lot of times the things that you're great at, they're sticking out the backside too as a real negative part of yourself. Like, I've really spent the last few years of my life recognizing these are things I'm really good at, which means there's something sticking out the back that I need to chop off, you know what I mean? And, and, and really taking the time to figure out uh, uh, how to do that most effectively. That's, to me, the most mature thing that I can accomplish in my life is accentuating the good things, getting rid of the things I'm horrible at, and trying to make sure that I'm getting better at the stuff I'm mediocre at. And kids, have a way of forcing you to slow everything down and figure out a creative way to not make it about yourself. And uh, um, it's maddening. Because, I mean, I like it to be about me, you know? I'm just joking. <laughs> um, well, Canal comes down. Talk a little bit about sort of post-football, how you made some of the choices. You know, everyone here probably doesn't know that you, while you were in the NFL, got your law degree and... Um, oh, I get to talk about the boring things? Um, well, you know, there was a pause. Okay. <laughs> uh, I went to law school, uh, graduated from BYU in 1994, uh, and I uh, went over six years. I took second semester classes throughout the whole six years. I, I uh, um, took first semester law school classes, uh, which is all first year properties, uh, torts, and everything. I audited them, passed them. That allowed me to actually go back to class in the second semester for credit. Uh, and I mean, I, uh, I did them orally. So I got through law school. It took me six years. Um, and 
obviously a great accomplishment for me. I really enjoyed it. Enjoyed the, I loved going from the Super Bowl to law classes like the next day. You know, <laughs> I went to Disneyland, then I went to law school. And uh, just I enjoyed the give and take and the different personalities. But then now I'm uh, kind of taking that. What happened was uh, very smartly, a couple of my teammates recognized that as we were in Santa Clara, right there next to Great America where we practiced, in 1987, when we moved down there, there was nothing down there. Literally, Cisco, 3Com, uh, Intel, they all were built right there, and right, in, right under our nose. And about 1994, when everybody was getting a little older, and we were like, well, what are we going to do next? One of, our, one of my teammates says, we should get some of the venture guys to see if we can't trade them for access to deals or whatever else is going on. What, what do we have to offer? And what we had to offer was locker room access, right? You know, come meet the guys. So we tried to find, hunt around for VCs that love football, and they wanted to come on the sidelines or whatever else, and it worked. We got great relationships, and we post, uh, my, right when I retired, three of us started a fund-of-funds business in the venture capital industry, where we would go around and get $10 million slots in Sequoia, uh, Benchmark, uh, Excel, uh, um, Kleiner Perkins. We put together 10, $10 million slots, $100 million, and went and raised it uh, from limited partners. And we were the pass through the fund of funds, and we had a little business. And uh, we serviced, you know, there was a lot of limited partners that couldn't have access to those funds, especially a wide variety of them. And so we started a business called Northgate Capital. And now they have a billion dollars under management. I left them after we had about $350 million, and we, I started a uh, private equity fund out of Salt Lake City called uh, Sorensen Capital. And I was a partner in that. And uh, that has been my goal when I retired was to be the dumbest guy in the room for at least 10 years, and that has been very easy to do. <laughs> <laughs> good, that's some good history. Yeah, thanks for coming. Uh, I was wondering, uh, you're talking about how you started out your career and Joe Montana was an icon, and then when you ended, you were an icon yourself. I was wondering uh, how that really, like, I know it was a process, but were there specific moments when things changed where you could, uh, where you had that credibility? I appreciate that. There was, I think the first place I had to change was within myself. I was, for a long time, I thought I was chasing, uh, I don't know what the Disney uh, story it is, where they chase around, the, the tiger's chasing something, and he, he turns the butter. I mean, they go so fast, it's like you're just chasing your tail, like you just run around. And it was like the whole world was saying, okay, if you want to be as good as Joe Montana, then you got to do this. And then I'd go running, jump through the hoop, and you know, and whoop, whoop. And I realized that I was just, I was, it was insane. And the first step for me trying to kind of getting to a place where I could kind of accomplish the goals I had was to first recognize that it wasn't about Joe Montana. It really was about finding out how good I can get. And that changed everything. It just it made my whole life, why I did what I did changed. Uh, it was my incentive was different. Just, it, and once I realized that really the goal was to see how good I could get, I might be horrible, but I'm going to find out how good I am. And that's all I really want to know. It, it, it didn't get to be about anybody else. It was really about me. That kind of uh, that helped get things moving in the right direction to getting my career going well. And then there are moments, um, big victories. Uh, um, uh, ironically, one of the most important ones was perceptionally. I, I have the saying in law, possession is nine-tenths of the law. But in football, perception is nine-tenths of the law. And I learned that so vividly. Uh, I had been to the, I'd been the MVP of the league twice. I had been to Pro Bowls. In the middle of 1994 season, or about the fourth or fifth game, uh, we were losing horribly. 
and uh, our coach, George Seifert, decided to brought, trot Elvis Gerback on the field, kind of like forcing me to go off the field. And for me, after all I'd been through and all I'd accomplished, everything, it, was, it, was, it was galling to me that he was now at this kind of key moment going to make it look like, oh, yeah. And maybe I, I took it the wrong way, obviously. But I got, I exploded. And I hadn't exploded ever before. I mean, I lost it. And I, and I don't lose it. I, and I, I, I decided at that moment I was going to fight him. My head coach, I was going to fight him. We were going to fight right there. Like I've had, I've had it, I'm fighting him. And so I challenged him to a fight. And I was, and so he wouldn't turn around. Like he was acting like he was watching the game, you know, and I was behind him and I was saying things and doing things. Um, and I didn't realize, I was so lost in it that I, didn't, I forgot that millions are watching on TV. And, uh, <laughs> but I, I'm yelling at him and calling him names and telling him to turn around. And, you know, if you got any guys, you know, you turn around, you chicken, you know, a, you know just everything, I could get him to fight me. And, you know, he's not going to fight me on national TV. You know? <laughs> but I would have fought him. I had lost it. I was, fi- I was, ready- I was fighting. I was- my hands were all ready to fight. So anyway, what happened out of that was all week long, the stories became Steve Young, our fiery leader. <clears throat> it's our fiery leader. I was like, what, what are you talking about? What do you, what do you mean, fiery? I'm... No fire, and I have, no one has more fire than me. What do you do? But I had, I'd put it in a way that no one saw it. All of a sudden, by emoting it, people were like, oh. And that was where I got the perceptions nine-tenths of law, because suddenly, I was the leader. I was like, I was somebody that you could, I mean, it was, and that, ironically, one of the more fundamental shifts in my career to how people looked at me, both from a media standpoint, from my teammate standpoint, was me screaming at my coach. Who would have thought? You lose it to gain it, you know what I mean? But I just remember that as a, you know, some of those weird things that, uh, you know, if you think that you're a fiery leader, you, that's not necessarily the case. You know what I mean? Because everyone else thinks you're a big milk toast, so it doesn't matter. You're milk toast, you know? No, no, I'm fiery leader. <laughs> we, don't see, we don't see it that way. <laughs> so I, I, another great concept about negotiation is how am I perceived? How are people perceiving me? I can use that to my advantage, right? And then also, what are weaknesses and how they perceive me? So uh, I tell players all the time now, don't complain, don't moan, don't cr- make, sure, make sure people perceive you the way you want to be perceived. And that necessarily has a lot to do with reality, but, you know, the, the point's made. Good. <coughs> kind of awkward to come down to the mic, isn't it? <laughs> so uh, how did you negotiate with yourself and with your family as you chose this as your career choice? And based on the trade-offs that you That's interesting. Um, so uh, I, I grew up in Greenwich, Connecticut. And uh, Greenwich is not the hotbed of football. Um, it's a bedroom community of New York, uh, uh, more, more known for golf and tennis than football. And uh, I, I played all sports. And I didn't really have a plan other than I liked to play sports. I didn't, you know, I went to school. My dad was expected great, my mom and dad great, expected great grades, which I gave them, which I wanted to do. Um, and I was going to go to law school always. I was going to go to college. And what happened to me, and I don't know this happens to everybody, is I just, if someone knocked on my door and wanted me to play a sport, I'd be glad to do it. And then, so in college, when, you know, it became time to recruiting for football, suddenly I had people knocking on my door saying, look, come play college football for us. And... Uh, being in Connecticut, a lot of the guys that recruited me were Ivy League schools, you know, because I was, had good grades and 
you know, they looked for the hat, and and uh, and so I had you know wanted to play football at uh, Cornell or Princeton or uh, Yale was just down the street, and so I had that offers, and then I had you know full scholarships to Brigham Young to North Carolina, um, and so we were weighing these out. I remember my dad one day was like, okay, so because Ivy League didn't give scholarships unless by need, which we didn't quite qualify for. My dad kept saying, why don't I qualify for scholarships? We don't, we don't have anything, but. Uh, so he was always like, okay, so $10,000 to go to play for Yale or free? Uh, I'd take free. And so, um, <laughs> uh, uh, and so I, I played football mostly because it got me to college for free. You know, my family needed that. And I would, you know, I would have gone to college, but it would have been a debt situation. And put, uh, many families have tremendous hardship putting their kids to college. And my family would have certainly done that. But going for free uh, was a tremendous boon for our family. And... Uh, so uh, it chose me in many ways. And then the next level was the pros. I finished my college career, and then here they came again. Okay, we want to draft you, and okay, you know. Uh, I had some reticence about it just because I, uh, I didn't, you know, I had anxiety about football. I, I, it wasn't, I worried a lot. I was a worrying kid, you know. I was, so it wasn't a natural thing like, oh, I can't wait to go play professional football because that was going to be a lot of pressure. And, you know, I'd be okay if I had less pressure in my life. But I ended up doing it and doing it for 18 years, which is comical if you look back at that. So I don't really, my family wasn't like my dad said, oh, don't play football, or my mom. You know, my mom was the one at eight years old, the famous story when I was eight years old, we were playing Little League. Another kid from the neighborhood, I had the ball, he tackled me around the neck, which was illegal, and then uh, threw me to the ground and knocked the wind out of me. And I'm laying on the ground, I can't breathe, you know. And my dad came out and pulled my pants out to give me air, and my mom came out on the field. And and I, told, I remember telling my dad, tell her to go back, you know, because mom, if she came out and kissed me or did something, you're like, kids would make fun of me or it would be horrible. But she stepped, almost stepped on me and she headed for the kid who had hit me and <laughs> grabbed him by his shoulders. Don't you ever hit my son again like that, you know? And so that was the most embarrassing thing a mom could do. But so, it, so my point is, it wasn't like my mom was going to say, don't play football. You know what I mean? She was, she was in. You know what I mean? She was very competitive and... You know, so there wasn't like, uh, you can go play football in college for free, and there was, no, there was no one in the family that said, oh, be careful, you can get hurt. You know, no one cared. <laughs> yeah, there was never any, anything like that. Uh, in fact, my dad always very facetiously said that I was built for a beating, you know, because I had thick bones and stuff like that, you know, so for football, I was perfect. You know. He didn't beat me, but football did. <laughs> you were kind of known in the, NBA, in the NFL for being able to take a beating. I could take a beating. Nice. Any other questions? Yeah. Uh, we know you have uh, experienced different uh, industries in your career. I'm wondering if there's any difference when you uh, negotiate with people in business uh, industry or people in uh, football area. So, mm. And uh, how do you feel uh, when you negotiate with them? Well, most of my negotiations, you can tell in football, were really surrounding about getting people to perform. And it wasn't necessarily about like, making a business deal, about negotiating a sale of a company, a purchase and sale agreement. Um, purchase and sale agreements. But the funny thing about even when I'm in purchase and sale agreements, the person who's selling their company or selling a piece of their company, it is, the, you know, it's a financial thing. There's no question about it. You know, what's the deal? And then, you know, not only what is the deal, when do I get my money? What's the escrow? What's the holdout? What do, want, what do, we want, what do you want me to do? But in the end, the reason why, to me, we get to you know, kind of be the one that makes the deal is that everybody has unique 
and individual needs in, in their sale. Oh, my uncles and my, my cousins, have a, you know, they work here and they need a job and I promised to, my, you know, it's like everyone has unique things. And it's getting, a lot of times they're embarrassed to say what they are. Oh, I, I have a, a, a cabin and I really, the, t the company's been paying for it and I really need them to keep paying for it, you know. No one says it. You're like, you're going through negotiations, you can't get it done. You're like, what is going on? Why can't we get there? Until you finally say, okay, so tell me more about what, what, your, what, your, what your business is. I mean, what are the, are the things going on? And there you go, well, you know, I got this thing. Well, let's talk about that. How can we solve that? What, what are the, and so then all of a sudden he realizes, oh, I can tell you. What are all these goofball things in my business? You know, I ran my own business. I'm not used to having someone else know my business. And getting that comfort level where a guy is, can tell you what that deal is. And that's the same, so it is the same stuff in the end. Yeah. It's still, you know, it's driving to, you know, uh, uh, you know, what the money is. I mean, don't kid yourself. But uh, in the end, the thing that seems to put over the line is when you can kind of individualize it and get inside their shoes and see what's really, what they're really worried about. A lot of times it's, uh, you know, my wife doesn't think it's the right thing to do. Well, let's, let's, let's educate her. Let's bring her in and show her the process. And, you know, let's, let's take down all the Chinese walls. Because a lot of people think, well, I don't... Don't want to bug it, you know. I mean, let's just let's open up, the, put air in the process, and it seems to be very much easier to get the negotiation done. Right. Other questions? I think we've worn them out, Stan. Let's go with two more questions. Mike, you have a question, and Zoe. Yes. And we'll um, wrap in up. the class, we deal with a lot of how to deal with difficult people. Do you? Can you give <laughs> us some example, like in real life, <laughs> like a tough yeah, guy? I, I, I spent the first hour and a half telling you about all the successes that I've had. Um, but there's, there are, uh, I mean, just saying that, there are people that just don't like you. You know, I use all my little tactics. All my, oh, hey, you know, hey, what's going on? I hate you. <laughs> right? I mean, there was a guy on the team, uh, he was a pretty influential guy on the team, uh, and he was predatory. He would see a weakness in somebody physically, emotionally, whatever it is. And he was predatory. He'd, he'd pounce. He'd crush people. And it would be relentless, embarrassing, brutal. But he's not a guy you wanted to fight. In football, it was kind of like, you know, in the end of the way, it was like, a, you know, law of Moses. You know what I mean? Look, if you really have a problem with it, well, then we're going at it. And I'm not a fighter. I, like, I never punched anyone in my life. So, I mean, I threatened a lot, but I never did. I, if, if someone ever actually fought me, I'd be like, wait, no. Uh. <laughs> anyway, what do we... Uh, why are we really here? You know? <laughs> Let's think about how, what got us here. Uh, <laughs> fake it till you make it. That was my thing. But uh, there were guys that just hated, you know, they just, I irritated them. You know, and they just, they, they was, you know, it was their goal to kind of make my life miserable. And I, but you know, and the guy I'm telling you about, it's interesting that I just, as I'm thinking about it, I never really thought much about this, but I, I actually did take moments. There were times, awkward times, where I'd come on the bus to go to the stadium or go to the plane or wherever we were, and there'd be one seat and he'd be there. You know? So down you go. And because it, you're trapped and he's trapped, I remember thinking, okay, I'm just going to, you know, talk to him. And I'd known enough about him that I could say, hey, look, you know. And so it's amazing what you can do if you can actually talk to somebody and get them, you know, away from their their comfort zone. And I remember my relationship, he never did like me. My relationship changed after we talked briefly. You know, just actually sat and talked for a minute. He was not nearly as abusive as he was before. But 
So there's, I mean, you got to admit that there's just, um, and, there'll, and there'll be deals that you can't get done. I mean, of all the deals I've done in the last two years in our private equity firm, um, there's 15 that couldn't get done for whatever reason. I don't know if that's necessarily negotiating failure, but, you know, if you studied them, which I think I try to do kind of post, uh, post breakup, uh, what are the things? You know, some of them are, you know, just they were net deals that you could get done. But sometimes I'm sure there were things that I didn't do right. Mike, do you have a question? Yeah, um, Could you talk about contract negotiations in the NFL um, in terms of what, what are the agents' roles? Are the agents' incentives aligned with your incentives? How acrimonious does it get? And your experiences with that? <laughs> it's changed a little bit over the years. Uh, with free agency, uh, there is some gamesmanship with uh, management that a good agent can kind of... Um, uh, I, I think the most important thing is your agent has a relationship with management. Uh, they can pick up the phone and talk to them. Uh, a guy, you know, I see a lot of guys trying to break in the business, tell them, hey, look, I'm a great, you know, I can do this for you and do this for you. Uh, in the end, uh, it really is about relationships in the NFL. It's like these guys are old school guys and they, you know, being able to just pick up the phone and talk to them is really the, one of the key differentiators in getting things accomplished. Other than that, most people are slotted. You know, I'm first round, 15th pick. Okay, what was last year? What's it this year? What's the range? It's a pretty tight range. Negotiating it, getting your guaranteed money. Anyone who graduated, pretty smart guy at MBA school that in sports law, uh, could probably do 95th percentile, you know, in deals right out right out of the gate. So I don't know that there's a big differenti differentiator there, but the relationships obviously that they call over a period of time and uh, are, are the huge differentiator. And the other thing is a relationship with a player. My, my agent, Lee Steinberg, negotiated tremendous contracts, but it wasn't the most valuable thing he did for me. He was a great um, psychologist because the football thrives on insecurity. That's how they get you to play hard, right? Because you have no job security. Who wants to go ram into other people unless you have to? And if I don't, I'm not going to have my job. Football has no guaranteed contracts. Literally, the 18 years that I played, never did I have a contract that I knew for sure by contract that I'd have a job the next year or even the next game. It is at will, game to game. Now, obviously, I get to a status, you're, 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 you're not going to get cut. But I'm just telling you, by contract, they could. You know? And so uh, that breeds incredible insecurity. Oh, the coach looked at me funny, especially when you're a rookie or starting out. I, you know, and so you don't, you can't go to your teammate and go, oh, the coach, look at me. You know, he thinks you're, you're crackers, right? And you can't call your dad because he has no context for it, right? So you call your agent. What are you know? What are they saying about me? You know what I? Well, you know you're, you know, you know what I mean. That's that relationship, for that first few years is vital, and that's why I encourage young players coming out of college, find a guy who you can commiserate with and who will give you the time and help you through it, because half the time of getting. Making a team is not just physical, it's emotional. It's keeping you going. Like not quitting and not pouting and not, you know, uh, you know, getting lost in the emotion of it all and the insecurity of it all. So to me, those are the two things. Relationship with management and your personal relation with them are the great things about it. Uh, 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 the is, is so the narrow, the, there's such a narrow negotiating uh, slot that even if you screwed it up, you're not, you know, you're not going to do too bad. 
I'm reminded of, maybe we can sort of end with this story. Your very first negotiation was with a team uh, in a different league, the LA Express. Um, and you had quite a negotiation with that owner. And maybe tell that story and what lessons you learned from it's it. Awesome. Awesome negotiation. Um, there was a time 20 years ago, over 20 years ago, which is really amazing. Wait till you guys are 40 something. You're like, what the crap happened? Um, <laughs> because it happens. It'll happen to you. You're like, what? But 1984, um, I was a, a rookie, and uh, there's new league. It was in the spring. You guys probably even realize this. And it was really big. There was big money in it. Donald Trump owned a team. Uh, there's a lot of people getting paid. Rookies coming out getting paid a lot of money. And I was one of them. I got to go to the LA Express. Was a team out of Los Angeles, and the guy who owned them was Bill Oldenburg, financial kind of. I would call him a financial manipulator, <laughs> but uh, had made tons of money. Uh, and uh, was, you know, loved to show it. He was in the Transamerica building downtown San Francisco, even though he wrote, ran the L.A. team. So the negotiation was going on, and they thought they had a deal with my agent, and, 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 so he, and it was his birthday. He said, oh, this is perfect. I'll fly him out in my jet. I'll pick him up in my um, Bentley at the SFO. I'll drive him to the Transamerica building. We'll bring him up. We'll have a big hoopla in the building. Have a big sign. Steve Young, welcome to the team. Blah, 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 you know. And then I'll have a big thing, and then I'll go to my birthday party. It'll be like a big thing. And so I flew in in his jet, got in the Bentley, drove over. Now, remember, I'm out of college. Just like you, I have 20 bucks maybe in my pocket, right? And I'm just like, hey, uh, whatever. And uh, I've never been to San Francisco in my life. Landed SFO. Bentley picks me up out of a private jet. Go to the Transamerica building. Up I go. And I get out of the elevator. Opulent offices. My name's up there and these lights coming across and streamers. And Steve, oh. And so, and then we were going to finish the negotiation and sign it that night at his birthday. That was the plan. Well, my dad, as a lawyer, wanted to have it all read to him in Greenwich, Connecticut, over the phone. So as, as they finished the negotiation, Lee Steinberg disappeared. He's like, i got to call his dad. And so, but my dad wasn't like, what is, okay, so what's the gist? He's like, okay, so uh, paragraph A, yeah, go, go ahead. You know, and, and so it was like taking a long time. And so Bill Oldenburg, who was... Um, he, you know, it was his birthday. He was, uh, you know, he was getting more, you know, emotive and he, frustration and, and uh, you know, what, what's going on? And, you know. and so I'm sitting, uh, and this is one of the nice point negotiations sometimes. Just do nothing, right? <laughs> Just sitting there. And, uh, and the night's going on. He's getting more and more frustrated. But Lee's done with my dad. And my dad's just like, okay, all right. So finally he comes in. He's like, what's the problem? Why can't we, can we, can we not finish this? Like, you know, let's finish this. Is it money? Is it more money you want? No, no, I just tried my dad, but he didn't know. He said, oh, is it more money? And he took his wad of like hundreds, like a big, huge wad, and throws it at me, boom, right there, hits me in the chest. Is it money you want? Money? And I'm like, I don't know, you know. And so I didn't say anything. Do you want money? And he storms out. And I'm like, holy crap, I've never seen so much money, you know. This is like a... I told Lee, let's sign now. I got more money than I've ever seen. <laughs> but, uh, but my dad wouldn't give in, and they never, what happened is it went on, and they never got it quite done. And he finally, uh, this is, so 6 o'clock I arrive with lights and everything. At 12.30, we get escorted out of the building. <laughs> the whole thing's off. You know, it's broken down because my dad had found something that Lee had to go negotiate again. He couldn't, he was mad about it. You know, I thought we were done. Da, 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 da. You know, we got escorted by security. At 12.45 a.m., I'm down at the, uh, at the outside the street in the Transamerica building. Lee Starnberg and I just sitting on the street like, no, what do we do? <laughs> I said, I don't know, but I got about $15,000 in my pocket. 
I don't know where you're going, but I'm going out. Oh, wow. That was awesome. I was 21. I mean, you can imagine. It was just awesome. And we ended up getting it done like four or five days later. But for a few days, it looked like it was off, you know. And that's the thing. Negotiations were about just sticking with it. And Lee was great at getting people back in, you know, like, hey, you know, let's just, and that was one of his real talents. And that's a people skill. I would say this, try to make a judgment for yourself. Am I a people skilled person? I mean, that's a natural skill. We all have different skills. Some of them are blessed with people skills. And if you are, then you're, 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 you're on your way to being a natural negotiator. If you, that's not one of your talents, that doesn't mean you can't be a great negotiator. But recognize that people skills are one of the big elements. And you can learn a lot of those skills by watching and really kind of stepping back and being kind of an observer, picking up things. And then finding, you know, it's all these soft skills that I talked about. So no one can't be a great negotiator, but some people have a leg up. Because to me, people that have those special people skills that are blessed with them, um, if they don't use it as a weapon and use it as a tool, can be very effective. All right. Thanks so much for your time. Hey, thanks.